We're reading this morning Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He knows them and knows them well. And he's writing to encourage them to grow in their faith. And the passage which we're about to study this morning is one of the great passages of all Scripture. And so we're beginning at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. And again, you'll find it page 1817 of the Church Bible. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestines us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of of his will. Now there are several things you need to know about Ephesians. Number one, the epistle was written by the Apostle Paul around the year 60 to 62 AD. The Apostle Paul had been arrested for his faith. He was about to go on trial before Caesar, and that gives you the background of Paul. During his time of incarceration, he wrote several epistles, and they're called the prison epistles quite simply because he's writing from a Roman prison cell. They are, of course, Ephesians, which we're about to study, followed by Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. And he's using his time well, writing to others, encouraging and strengthening and equipping them to grow in their faith. And so that's the prison epistles. The next thing you need to know is this, Paul was very familiar with the church in the city of Ephesus. He'd first visited Ephesus around the year AD 50. He then went back to live in the city for three years, establishing the young church in Ephesus, watching it grow. So he had a great fondness and affection for the folks at Ephesus, and he knew them well. Having said a little about Paul, let me say a little about the city as we finally make our descent into the passage of Scripture itself. Number one, it was one of the largest and most important cities on the west coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And in fact, you can go and visit the ruins of Ephesians uh, of Ephesus today, and they're quite spectacular. Secondly, 
Ephesus was an important trade center, a seaport in the province of Asia. It was one of the largest cities in the province with 300,000 people living in the city. Now, by anyone's uh, guess, 300,000, that is a spectacular-sized city. It's just enormous in the days of antiquity. It was also known not simply for a seaport and a major city. It was a focus of culture in the area. It had a theater, an open-air theater, which could seat an estimated 35 to 40,000 people. Now, that's a going concern by anyone's estimate. It had a main thoroughfare, about 105 feet wide, and flanked by rows of columns 50 feet deep. And if you go to Ephesus today, you can see that main thoroughfare. You can walk up and down it. Thirdly, it was considered as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it had a temple to Diana, which was breathtaking in terms of its size and the impact it had on the folks in Ephesus itself. Ephesians has been described in this way. A marvelously concise yet comprehensive summary of the gospel and its implications. And it certainly does that and does it wonderfully. Secondly, nobody can read it without being moved to wonder and worship and challenged to consistency of life. My prayer is that that's going to be our experience this morning, in fact. Thirdly, it is the crown of St. Paul's writings, it has been claimed, and I think that's valid. The divinest comp position of man, and that is also valid, the queen of the epistles. Fourthly, this letter is pure music. What we read here is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. Those were the words of the Reverend Dr. John Mackay, uh, who was principal of Princeton Theological Seminary in the last century, and he gets it right. Here is doctrine set to music. It is a spectacular epistle. Now notice how Paul begins. He begins with his name, which was the tradition in the days of antiquity. Today, of course, we put our name at the end of a letter or an email, but in those days, the name went first, almost to introduce you to your hearers. And since Paul had been away from the church in Ephesus for several years now, he fully recognizes that although he knows them, knows them well, has been part of the growth and development of the church of Ephesus, like any church, there is always a mixed group of people, some there for the first time, some newcomers. And so Paul is writing to introduce himself. And it begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now the question is, why does he write that? Why doesn't he simply say, Paul to the saints in Ephesus? Why mention that he is an apostle? Because what he wants them to know is this, that what they are about to read comes with apostolic authority. And the apostles were chosen by Christ, equipped by him, commissioned by him, and sent forth by him. The equivalent today would be a senior diplomat, an ambassador, for example, someone who would visit foreign nations and speak on behalf, in our context, would speak on behalf of the current administration. And so when an ambassador speaks today, people pay attention. 
And that's the point here as well. When Paul speaks, he is saying this. Pay attention. This is significant. What you're about to hear will equip you and enable you to be growing in your faith. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Not selected by a committee. Not encouraged by two or three of my closest friends to go into the ministry. But an apostle called by God. And having introduced himself, he then describes his readers to the saints in Ephesus. Saints, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now those terms will come up again further in the epistle. So please forgive me if I quickly move on through them this morning. But pay attention to the phrase, in Christ Jesus. Those are some of the greatest words to be found in any New Testament epistle. And we will come back to them. And then he moves from greetings to blessings. And he writes, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That word grace dominates this epistle. It is the single greatest motif, theme, focal point of the entire epistle. And it is, of course, one of the great words of biblical language and biblical literacy. It, of course, is attached to what we think is the most popular hymn of all time, Amazing grace. It is God's unmerited love and favor and blessing on his children. And we'll come back to it in subsequent times. So please forgive me again for jumping over it this morning. And so we come to verse 3. And as we begin at verse 3, please understand this. Verse 3 to the end of verse 14 in the original Greek language is a single sentence. Now let me say that again. From verse 3 all the way to verse 14 is one sentence. And it's almost as if the Apostle Paul cannot write quickly enough. The single complex sentence. And as he writes, his mind is soaring heavenward because Paul remembers what it was like on the road to Damascus when he met the risen Christ and he was transformed forever right there. And all that he had stood up against, all that he had fought against, the people he had hated turned out to be loved by God. And now Paul himself was touched by the grace and love and mercy and goodness of God. And he would never be the same again. And I imagine all of that is running through Paul's mind as he's writing and writing and writing. And he's writing, of course, of the transforming love of God. He is lost in worship and wonder and praise. And notice how he begins. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. And here it comes, don't miss it, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Notice what he says, every spiritual blessing. He's not saying that God from time to time thinks, well, they're having a tough day, maybe I should help them a little. He's saying the very opposite. He's saying, well, they're going through challenging times. They need someone to help them. The very opposite. He's saying he has given you every spiritual 
blessing. Every answered prayer, every forgiven sin, every moment when you were tempted to give up and wander from the things of God, here is the Spirit of God with His arm around you, drawing you back, drawing you into that deeper place. And when you are tempted to say, oh, I've had enough, He blesses us again. This past Thursday evening, I had been in Egypt for the best part of almost nine days by that time. And I had, we had come back into the United States. We had landed, my son Michael was with me, we had landed at Houston and we were tight for our time connecting to Greenville. We had about an hour and 15 minutes. And as we're standing at passport control, there are 300 people in front of us. And I'm looking at my... Uh, boarding pass and I'm looking at my watch and I'm now down to 25 minutes and I say to one of the passport control officers who's directing all the traffic there are 40 booths you can go through any of them I say to her excuse me we've got about 25 minutes to make our flight we have to get through passport control pick up our bags drop them on the transfer belt go over to terminals in order to catch the Greenville flight and it's the last one tonight. Is there any possibility you can help us and move us towards the front so we can get through in time to catch it? And she said, no, go and join the line. And I asked a second passport control officer and a third passport control officer and the three of them said, no, we cannot help you. And we got through just in time to miss the flight. The next flight to Greenville was 24 hours later and we had to stay overnight in Houston. And I had a funeral on Saturday morning and I was not feeling at my best. I'd been flying for 18 hours, not waiting, not checking in, just in the air for 18 hours. And when the third officer said, no, go to the back of the line, I was ready for murdering someone by that stage. And I had to take a deep breath and say, now remember, you're a pastor. Behave yourself. Please don't strangle anyone or punch someone. Just nice and easy. It did not feel that I had every blessing in Christ right there and then. It didn't feel it. But we're not called to live by feelings. We're called to live by faith. And we trust him. And notice what he goes on to say. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are already there ahead of me in your mind. And you are already thinking, Richard, what are you trying to tell us when Paul writes, before the foundation of the world, God set his love and affection upon us and we are the predestined, God's frozen chosen. Is that the Presbyterians? And the answer is yes. The passage tells us Paul was a Presbyterian. It is crystal clear. He focused on predestination. He delighted in these rich foundational doctrinal truths. This is 
doctrine set to music. And the question is this. Here is a young church, just about 10 years old, in one of the busiest, fastest growing cities in Asia Minor. A church who was impacting and influencing the city. A church that had something to say, was watching lives being transformed and renewed. And why does the Apostle Paul, in the midst of writing to them, get lost in wonder, love, and praise? Is he simply lost in terms of his mind and heart and soul? He's lost himself in a moment of worship? Absolutely. But was it the love of God that caused him to do that? Of course it was. But it's much deeper than that. And what Paul is telling us is this, that way, way, way back... Before anything else was made, before the atom existed, God in his love and grace set his affection upon us. Upon us. Before anything else was made, he set his love and affection upon us. Last night I attended a wedding and I was simply sitting watching the wedding. Shelton was conducting the wedding. And Shelton did, he had the self-same experience as I often have. Because pastors, when there is a wedding here, we have the front row seat. And there was three or four hundred people here. And of course when it comes time for the bride to arrive in weddings, of course naturally we stand. And the people who have been facing the front turn to the back to watch the bride come across the back aisle and then down this side. And the entire congregation last night, and often with weddings, are watching the bride and her father come in. But because of the seat that we have, I was watching the groom. The bride, incidentally, is not looking at grandma. The bride is not looking at aunties and uncles and sorority sisters. She is also looking at the groom. No one else in the room matters to the bride at that point. And what pastors see in the groom is this, that he begins to levitate by about two and a half feet as he watches his bride come towards him because the love that they have for each other are demonstrated right there and then. And please understand this. And the analogy is this. That when Christ looks at us, it is like the groom looking at his bride. That's what scripture tells us. And before the foundation of the world, he lavished his love upon us. That's the language used. He doesn't do it in some offhand, casual manner, but he lavishes his love on us. And he does it again and again and again and again. And the passage tells us before the foundation of the world, he set his love upon us How and why? In accordance with his purpose and his will. And what is his purpose and his will? The salvation of humanity. That's the purposes of God. And that's why Paul is excited. That's why he can't contain himself. That's why it's pouring out on the paper as he is lost in wonder, love and praise. All of that is going on. And please, please, please get this. And not only does he pour his love upon us, 
but he orchestrates and engineers our lives and brings us to that point when he reveals his grace to us. And the only thing that we are capable when the Holy Spirit effectually calls us to himself is to repent and believe. That's what's going on here. And please get it. I, and I can only speak for myself, and I suspect you are exactly the same, that I have given God multiple reasons throughout my childhood and adult life to look at me and say, Richard, that's it. I'm done with you. I'm giving up with you. Don't even come near me again. And my sin is so real and so dreadful. He would have every justification in doing so. And yet he utterly refuses. And he will not abandon us to the circumstances of our lives. He will not abandon us to the pathology and disease and addiction and enslavement of sin. Because he loves us. Most of us are familiar with the rhyme of seven and eight-year-old girls when they pull a flower and they say, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. It's a wonderful thing when you're seven or eight years old, but it's not theological truth. It is not doctrine on fire because doctrine that sings tells us this, he loves me and he loves me and he loves me and he loves me and he loves me. That's the gospel. That's why Paul is excited. That's why he begins with deep, profound theology as he's writing to this young church in Ephesus. And Paul does what he always does. The first half of the epistle is deep and wonderful and spectacular theological writing. And then he moves us to the applicable and to the outworking of our faith. But you can't go to the practical without grasping the enormity and the wonder of his love. And that's why he says, before the foundation of the world, you were mine and I love you. Now, how do we begin to apply all of this? There comes moments in the life of any congregation where God begins to challenge us corporately and as individuals and say to us, I am ready to watch you fly. I love you and I love you and I love you and you have no idea what I have in mind for you, but it's time to fly. It's time to become who you were created to be. And like that young church in Ephesus, we now find ourselves at the heart of a vibrant, growing city. A place where people are excited to be. And please don't misunderstand me when I say this. What is the greatest single need of our city today? Is it new schools for the growing population? Probably. Is it better traffic control so we can get in and around the city? Probably. Is it better health service? Probably. And there are so many things we do as a city, and we're so many that we'll need to expand our infrastructure if we're ever to keep up with the city. 
But I am absolutely convinced the greatest need of our city is a church committed to the gospel. A church where people are welcomed. A church where people are prayed for. A church who will impact and influence and shape the spiritual and moral standards of our city. A place where God is engaged with. A place where lives are transformed. A church that makes a difference. And over these next couple of weeks, as we get further and further into Ephesians, my prayer for each of us is this, that we will delight and be excited in all that God is doing and all that he is calling us to. Because when he opens chapter 4, and we'll get there in subsequent weeks, Paul says this, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And I cannot wait to see what God is doing in our midst. Will it be comfortable? No. Will we find ourselves being bumped and moved to the edge of the nest regularly? Yes, we will. Because he's saying to us, you are capable of so much more. And in the midst of all of that, let us engage with him and say, Father, lead. We are ready to follow. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture this morning. Thank you for the wonders of your grace and love towards us. Bless us, encourage us, equip us, enable us to be yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.